Hello, everyone. It's been a touching weekend, has it not? I appreciate how candid and vulnerable the people have been that have given their testimonies. And um, it's a real privilege for me to share with you tonight what the Lord has put on my heart regard regarding um, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, 7, and 8. Um, I don't know how, but when I was preparing this, I wasn't thinking that we use the CSV. So we will be using the King James, no, the ESV <laughs> version tonight, or at least I will. And I'm not going to go through 6, 7, and 8 verse by verse, um, but we're going to zero in on some verses from each chapter. And I realize that time's limited, so you may find me going a little quick, but I feel that it's important to um, get this information out to you so that we can benefit together from God's holy word. So let me just say a quick prayer. Lord God, life under the sun is so challenging, but help us to see more tonight, me and my brothers in here, your sovereignty. Give us more faith and assurance in your sovereignty. Use your word to sanctify us, to convict us, and to edify us. In your name, we pray, Jesus. Amen. When we think of Ecclesiastes, we can become intimidated or confused because we find it hard to grasp or its tone doesn't seem very encouraging, does it? The book even seems quite negative about life. Pastor Steve and Pastor Mike have, have touched upon that. But this book is one of the ways that the Lord speaks to us. This book made it into the canon. Okay, in the ancient church, they didn't debate for years whether Ecclesiastes should be in the canon. This book was accepted to be part of God's word, and so it has authority to speak to us tonight. Now, I want us to recall a little bit, if we can, the history of God's people. And I don't mean the history of God's people since... Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father. But in ancient times, when God called a man named Abram from Mesopotamia to trust him, promising him that a whole nation would come from his loins, this nation grew tremendously in ancient Egypt under the pharaohs. And God revealed to these people that out of all the people groups, the nations of the earth, the ancient Hebrews were his prized possession. And what did God do? But he raised up Moses and he rescued them from slavery and he led them into the wilderness of Sinai. He gave the Hebrews the Ten Commandments and he instructed these people how to worship him properly. Moreover, he enabled the Hebrews to conquer armies like the Canaanites and he gave them land, promised land to settle on. Furthermore, the great I am gave the Hebrews priests, prophets, judges, and kings. And we know that God made a covenant with the Hebrews. He loved them so much that he gave them his law, the Ten Commandments to follow. And when he gave them priests, it was in order for the priests to lead the people to worship him 
and to make proper sacrifices for the atonement of sins. And he spoke to his people, not just through the law and the Ten Commandments, but later on through the prophets, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Haggai, and so forth. But have you thought about this, my brothers, that the Lord also taught the Hebrews about wisdom? Now, there are other peoples in the Middle East around the Hebrews that also pursued wisdom. But the Hebrews' wisdom was directly connected to what God had revealed about himself in the law. In other words, for a Hebrew, wisdom was rooted in the fear of the Lord. Wisdom was knowledge and experience that could be learned and practiced. And it was also taught. So, in addition to leaders such as kings and prophets and priests, there was also Hebrew sages or wise men. These men taught wisdom and they incessantly sought it. In fact, there's an example of Hebrew sages that we can find in the Old Testament in King Solomon's royal court. And Ecclesiastes is a Hebrew book of wisdom. What makes it unique, however, is that it's considered critical or pessimistic wisdom. It focuses on, like we've seen already, human suffering, social injustice, death, and the meaning of life. And there are some scholars, believe it or not, that think it could have been written by someone else besides Solomon, like a Hebrew sage. But regardless, Ecclesiastes was taught by the Hebrew sages, the Hebrew wise men, and it was studied by the Hebrew wise men and the youth of Israel. Now, as Pastor Mike mentioned, this term koalith is translated in many of our versions as teacher and preacher. But I just wanted to point out what's interesting is that the term, the Hebrew word koalith, comes from a verb that means to assemble people in order to teach them. And so in Ecclesiastes, we have Hebrew wisdom that was assembled and, uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in order to teach ancient Hebrews and my brothers in order to teach us God's people today in 2020. Let's change direction a little bit. There's a principle called the retribution principle. You know about it though you may have never heard the term. What does God say in Deuteronomy to his people? He says, if you obey me, you will be blessed. If you turn away from me and start following false gods, the land's going to vomit you out. You'll eventually go into exile. And so the retribution principle is, if you obey the Lord, if you follow his ways, you will be blessed. If you don't, you will be punished. The retribution principle was believed by everyone in Israel, and God operates by that principle. However, what I want to point out, what we must grab hold of, is that the retribution principle does not provide a consistent explanation as to why the wicked, for an example, prosper, and God's people don't. In other words, the retribution principle cannot demand action from God. It's real. God does punish the wicked. He blesses the righteous. But we know in everyday life, it doesn't always pan out like this as soon as we want. And so the author of Ecclesiastes is dealing with this as he's writing. 
Life is good. You know that smiley face that you see on sharks? Life is good. You see it on the back of cars as a bumper sticker. There's even clothing stores now called Life is Good. Maybe some of you have those shirts. Do you know the story behind it? Bert and John Jacobs are the designers of Life is Good t-shirts and clothing. And they say on their website, you know, life is not easy, it's not perfect, but life is good. And one of the inspirations behind their brand is that they've taken an accurate, I think, account of how people are just so overwhelmed with negative things, all kinds of disease that families experience, opioid addictions that we've heard about tonight that are rampant. There's just so many negative things, the list goes on and on. And then from the media comes all kinds of negativity. So they said that they wanted people to focus on optimism and gratitude despite all the negatives of life. And I thought, that's a great attitude to have. But then it came to me, they don't answer why though we should be optimistic. They don't answer why we should say life is good and have all kinds of gratitude. They just think that it's a good thought process to have despite this world of negativity. And I thought, when someone's at rock bottom with pain and loss, simply deciding to be optimistic and grateful and say life is good, it's just not gonna cut it. And what I love about Ecclesiastes, brother, is that it deals head on with the negative parts of our lives and it does not give a superficial response. So if we turn to chapter 6 of Ecclesiastes, we're going to focus on, for a few moments, verses 1 and 2. And I'm reading from the ESV. And Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet, God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. Under the sun, meaning here on earth, Earth, an evil that is common to people is the fact that there are people out there that God is blessed with wealth, assets, honor, but they're not able to enjoy it. And on the contrary, it can be that an, a person unknown enjoy those very things that that person was blessed with and perhaps worked so hard for. Let's think of an example. Take a man. He works hard for many, many years to buy a vacation home. Or he works hard for many years in order to be able to financially help a loved one out. Only to lose what he had worked for and not be able to buy the home or help that person out. Or what about a woman who has worked her way up in a company and she finally has achieved her goal of rising to a certain position within the company only to fall terminally ill? What about a family that built their dream house only to lose it to a foreclosure shortly after moving in and then another family moved in? 
So God gave these people the vacation house, the woman, the prestigious position at work, and the dream home, and yet he didn't allow them to enjoy it, or if he did, it was for a short time. I mean, this seems so unfair, does it not? Why would God bless someone with these things and not allow them to enjoy it? Think about that. Now let's turn to Ecclesiastes 7, verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. A righteous man dies, brothers, perhaps early in his life, but a wicked man who commits evil acts, lives for a long time. And he has this permission, it seems, to keep continuing to do evil. Or look at chapter 8. Excuse me. Um, not chapter 8. I believe it's the next verse. There is a, if, and if it's not, I apologize. I must have messed up on my notes, so just listen if it's not there. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this is also vanity. And so righteous people often suffer, while the wicked often experience easy times. Shouldn't this be the other way around? Think about that. I want to inform you, brothers, of the 1970s Uganda. Maybe some of you remember this, but you didn't hear much about it on the news. There was a big bully in Uganda who became dictator of the whole East African country named Idi Amin. But people thought he was a big teddy bear at first because he just seemed so lovable and humorous and kind, but he ended up being a brutal dictator because he and his regime were responsible for murdering between 300,000 and 500,000 Ugandans over an eight-year period. Now in the capital city of Kampala, there was this bright pink L-shaped building that was called the State Research Bureau. And 300 of Idi Amin's loyal workers supposedly quote-unquote worked there. But instead, these 300 loyals to Idi Amin tortured, strangled, and shot and beheaded many Ugandans. This pastor by the name of George Luquia found himself in this pink L-shaped hellhole. And he, along with many other Christians in Uganda, were targeted for part of Idi Amin's agenda was to turn Uganda into an Islamic state. This pastor found himself in a 10-foot by 16-foot room with 60 other prisoners. When many of them were killed, they were just left lifeless to rot in the cells. And George, Pastor George and others still living, would go for days without water and they would become so thirsty that some of them decided to drink their own urine. George himself was beaten by guards that were high on drugs and intoxicated with alcohol, and he thought that his life was not going to continue. And I asked, why do those like Pastor George and others 
Christians that God had made righteous suffer, and some even die, while a wicked man named Idi Amin continued to live. In fact, Idi Amin, my friends, was never brought to trial for his wickedness. When he was eventually overthrown, he was given asylum in Saudi Arabia, and he lived there up until 2003 without ever being brought to trial or judgment. Again, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Let's look at chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. This text says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city when they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. The holy place that's referred to here was the Jewish temple. And Solomon is saying that these men were praised by the people in Jerusalem as they used to go to and from the temple, despite the fact that these people were known for being wicked. In other words, they would go to the temple and pretend to worship Yahweh, but their deeds were very wicked, and, and they were praised, they were popular among the people. They also received a burial, which in ancient Israel was considered an honorable treatment. And so why are the wicked receiving an honorable burial and being praised by the people? Why does God not punish sinners right away? Why are evildoers honored and praised? Why isn't that judgment against the wicked does not come sooner? I mean, does God give an answer to all these questions? Why would God bless someone with prosperity and not allow them to enjoy it? Why do the righteous suffer and the wicked do not? Why are the evil doers honored and praised? Does God give an answer to these questions? I don't think he does, to our satisfaction. But he tells us what perspective he wants us to have. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14, Solomon writes, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In other words, God sovereignly gives days of joy to his people, and he sovereignly allows days of adversity to come to his people. Consider that. The early Christians did. I don't know if you're familiar with the spread of the early church, but after the book of Acts, the story didn't end. Christians popped up all over the Mediterranean world, not just in Palestine and ancient Turkey and Greece, but in Egypt, all across North Africa, what would be today northern Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, all the way to Italy, into Spain and into France, which was, which was called Gaul. And there were devout Christians everywhere. It was absolutely amazing. And we have a record of an early church historian named Eusebius who got a letter of a pastor in Alexandria, Egypt, named Dionysius. Dionysius was a pastor when this brutal Roman emperor named Decian was persecuting Christians all throughout the empire. 
And Dionysius writes about what some Christians experienced in Alexandria, Egypt. He said that an old man named Metris, a Christian man, was taken by the authorities and told to utter blasphemous words and phrases toward his God, which would be Jesus, the Father and the Spirit. And this man, Metris, refused. As a result, they beat him with heavy clubs and they drove reeds into his face and eyes. After they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Dionysius talks about a Christian woman by the name of Quinta. She was taken by the authorities to the idol's temple. And they told her, you must bow down to these idols instead of worshipping your God and following Jesus. And she turned her back to the idols in disgust. So what they did was they tied her feet to some kind of wagon and they dragged her through the city at the back of the wagon, intentionally bumping her against large stones on the road. And then they finally stoned her to death. They arrested a man named Serapion in his own house, a Christian man. They went into his house, they arrested him on the spot, they broke his arms and legs, and then they threw him headfirst from the upper floor of his home. This is graphic detail, and I'm telling you, brothers, we have many accounts of these martyrs. What stuns me is the perspective that they had. Dionysius said it was so brutal at this time that no road, no highway, no alley was open to any of the Christians, either by night or day. Always and everywhere, everybody was shouting that anyone who did not join their pagan celebrations must be at once dragged away and burnt. You want to talk about pressure on the church of Jesus Christ. Yet these martyrs were aware that God, God was in charge of adversity. Like it says in Ecclesiastes 7.14, consider when the day of adversity comes. These martyrs, they weren't caught off guard. Jesus said that his followers would be persecuted. They weren't like saying, why is this happening to us? And so they understood that God ordained good and bad times for his people with a purpose in mind. Why? To depend on him. To understand that he's sovereign over all things and depend on him. Think about what James says in chapter 4. Don't say you're going to go to this city and accomplish this task without saying it's the Lord's will. For you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Think about what Paul says in Romans 8.18. He says, suffering is not worth comparing with the glory of that is going to be revealed to us. And then he says, God's going to work all things out together for our good. Because the church knows that the future for us is glorious. And that in the meantime, on our pilgrimage on earth, God's going to use all things for his good and our good through his sovereign power. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verses 12 and 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. Verse 13. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Think about it, guys. Those sinners can sin over and over again and still live a long life. In the end, it's not going to go well. 
with people who do not fear God, no matter how much they get away with. In the end, it will not go well for Idi Amin. In the end, it will not go well for the person who just has no interest in following Christ. This I know is a perspective that comes from faith. Solomon didn't see God avenge these wicked deeds necessarily, but he had some kind of hint that it was going to happen, which is amazing because the Old Testament saints didn't have an understanding of the afterlife like we have the privilege of having now because of Christ. The revelation was somewhat limited then because the Lord Jesus had not come. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46? He said at the end of days, he is going to separate all the ethnic groups, all the nations into two categories. <coughs> those that are his people and those that are not. We as people will inherit the kingdom and those that are not will go to eternal punishment. Paul tells us that even if you and I die, before this happens, we're going to be present with the Lord. He says that in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. While those who do not know God and obey the gospel of Jesus will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the Lord's presence. As it says in 2 Thessalonians 1.8 and 9. And so, the answer, the perspective is, you know, when it doesn't seem like God's following the retribution principle, when the wicked continue to get away with wickedness, when things are going so horrible for us, we're asking God, why? Why did I lose this person that I love so much? Why do I have this disease? Why did I lose my money? Why is this happening? And God doesn't answer. What he wants us to understand, brothers, is that Remember what Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but I have overcome. God sovereignly allows us and gives us days of joy and days of trouble to make us depend more on him so that he can mold us and shape us and to be more the image of his son. And yet in the future, there's going to be no more pain, no more suffering, as Revelation says, but there's going to be eternal comfort and joy in his glorious presence let's close in prayer Lord as I put this together you know what was going through my mind and that is I need this more than most people and the time of testing may come Lord and I pray by your grace that you would help me apply these truths and just rest in your loving arms and I thank you for those in here that have gone through such hard times and have been an example to us of trusting you and just leaning on you and not their own understanding and I just pray Lord that in the future that we as your church your local body would be there for one another for to lean on when we go through tough times and the answers aren't clear and the day of adversity comes. 
And I pray that you would help us to give all the glory to you and praise to you in the day of prosperity. And I just pray that your hand would be upon us for the rest of this retreat. And um, I pray that you would be glorified tomorrow morning back in Hingham through praise and worship and through the preaching of your word. In your name we pray. Amen.